Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we ask that you would be glorified in all that is said and heard, that your Holy Spirit would take what is said and use it to conform our spirits to yours, to conform our lives to yours. Help us to see you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, on uh, Thursday evening, I flew back from Arizona. And as you look out the, the window, you can see snow-capped peaks among the forest of trees and hills and valleys and rivers. And it is beautiful. And it is so big. So big you can't see it all, no matter how hard you try. And the more you look at it, the bigger and more wonderful it becomes. And, and that is just the itty-bitty part of the big picture that you can see outside the window of an airplane. If you had a super-duper power mega lens, you could focus on some of the details of that itty-bitty piece of the big picture that we're looking at. And perhaps you would see some critters on the ground, which would actually be pretty cool to see a mountain goat standing there on the rocky outcropping or a flying squirrel gliding through the air or colorful flowers or the magnificent insects that just are all throughout that beauty of creation. But you might also see a cougar attacking a fawn and ripping it to shreds and eating it with blood all over its face or a really old cougar being pestered by a pack of coyotes until it gives up and is mauled to death by them, or a carcass of a salmon that had miraculously made it back to where it had hatched a few years earlier, and, and now it is rotting on the side of the stream, becoming, in essence, forest fertilizer. One might even feel sorry for the salmon or the little bambi or the old cougar, at least with our Disneyified worldview. However, if you refocus on the wonder of the big picture and acknowledge that even those gruesome details play a part in making the creation so amazing, you, you will slip back into awe. Our text from the, it's actually the second sermon on the book of Joshua, that has some rather gruesome details that might even make us uncomfortable, like seeing a fawn torn to bits. But God put these details in our Bible for a reason. And we need to remember not to let the details that we might not fully comprehend cause us to forget the big picture, which is also bigger than we are capable of understanding. The big picture is of God's glory and his love and his grace and his mercy and his eventual saving of us and granting to us a future with him in wonder and awe and joy and peace. And that big picture would not exist without the details. 
One more thing. Before I read our texts, know that there are numerous similar texts to what you will hear, and not just in the book of Joshua. The first reading picks up at the conclusion of the Jericho event, where God had clearly displayed that it was God himself who was leading what was to happen in Jericho. Hear the word of the Lord from Joshua chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, the people shouted a great shout, and the walls fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, ox, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword. The second reading comes to us from Joshua chapter 10, verses 38 to 40. Then Joshua, and this is, uh, by the way, this is after the conquest of a number of the cities in, in southern Canaan. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with its king and its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left nothing remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and Libna and its king. So he did to Debir and to its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, the Negev and the lowland, and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all the kings and their lands at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Our last reading comes from Joshua eleven sixteen to 20. So Joshua took all that land the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowlands from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Belgad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Well, let, let's be honest. Those, those are not easy scriptures. I mean, the, the Israelites killed Everyone, women, children, old, young, even the animals. How in the world can this be something the God of love condoned, let alone ordered, commanded? And we say we serve a God of love and justice. How can this be? When we encounter texts like these, 
Two mistakes that are too frequently made are avoiding these texts and apologizing for these texts. We avoid them by, and this is one of the worst and probably the primary way, we avoid them by basically saying or thinking something like, oh, that's the Old Testament and it doesn't really apply to us. We are, after all, the people of the New Testament. Now, I cannot, due to time, explain all the ways that is so very wrong, but we, the truth is we, we absolutely need to be thankful for the Old Testament. It's a gift, all of it. And it was the only Bible that the apostles and the early Christians had, and they loved it, and they used it to preach Christ and redemption and salvation in him. And it includes those sections that we just read. The Old Testament remains God's word to us, and avoiding it, even sections like this, is, is a mistake. However, it's the second thing that we do that I really want to take head on, and and. And it's a fundamental error made by modernized Christians, particularly Christians who are not looking at the whole testimony of God, particularly Christians who are getting their values and moral sensitivities from humanism or from Disney or from the world rather than from the creator. Basically, they apologize for these texts. Some of them are even ashamed of them. And brothers and sisters, this is wrong and it's arrogant. And it's the result of focusing on details without the full knowledge of the whole or even of the details and of reaching a conclusion as if we know everything. It also, and this is why it is kind of on the arrogant side, it lacks appreciation or understanding of how each detail is being worked out by, and we must remember this, a sovereign, good, just God who's a bit smarter than we are, regardless if we get it or not. Both the tendency to avoid these sections of scriptures or to apologize for them are rooted in a failure to rightly handle the word of God. First and foremost, by forgetting the whole point of the Bible. And what I mean by this is we have to ask the question, whose story is this? Is it, is it primarily about the Jews? Is it primarily about humankind? Is it about us? No. It is primarily about God. The Bible is an account of an amazing creator who created out of nothing and then chose to have a relationship with his creation to demonstrate his love and mercy and grace and glory. We are the creation. We did nothing to get here. We actually deserve nothing. We are entirely dependent on the creator for everything from the air that we just inhaled to the ongoing miracle after miracle that keeps our bodies functioning to our ability to think. We only exist and we have to know this. We only exist because of his sovereign choice and grace. 
Even more amazing, though, is that that creator desires a relationship with us. We, we can claim something. We, we can claim ownership, both as individuals and as a whole, of our rejection of him and our sin. That's ours. And yet he chooses to persist with us, not because of us, but because of him. Forgetting that the Bible is a story about God and and not about us means that whatever other conclusions we make about this life, about God based on the Bible, will be misguided from the outset. God is the primary character and the protagonist. And he is good and loving and just always, whether we get it or not. To think we can pass judgment on God for anything is more misguided than a beautiful pot made from a useless lump of clay questioning the work of the potter. Uneasiness about the details of his actions which cause us to question whether he is good, whether he is just, whether he is loving all the time is simply due to our ignorance or our arrogance. We also would do well to keep in mind that the, man, the main antagonist in, in this story is not Satan. It is us. We and our sin are the problem. Yet, he loves us. And as the story plays out, regardless of any discomfort we might have, we need to remember that God's interaction with us, which he did not have to choose to do at all, is entirely out of his immeasurable love and grace. Reaching conclusions based on details, without an understanding of the whole, which we can never have, or even the ability to truly comprehend what's behind those details, will lead to errors of all kinds, and it has. We also need to ask, when we hear texts like this, is, do we believe it? Most, even those who do not believe in the historicity of the Bible, have no problem whatsoever believing that the Israelites did this, that they, that they killed everyone, including the babies and the animals. However, people struggle with the rest of the recorded story. They often fall victim to the lie that if God really did command such, that would make him an evil ogre who orders the slaughter of innocents. That's a lie. Or some believe the lie that humankind is something that humankind isn't, something that has value apart from God, or that humans are something that have the cognitive and moral qualifications to determine what a perfect, good, and holy God can and can't do, or that humans are something other than born and bathed in sin. The truth is, God did order these things, and they were not due to a misunderstanding by a tribal leader who was behaving like the culture of the land. It was exactly what God told them to do. He led them in it. In fact, when Israel held back, God punished them. 
The problem is not with God or his goodness. The problem is with our ability to understand or to think too much of ourselves. We, we cannot even come close to comprehending the itty-bitty part of the big picture of his creation outside a plain window, let alone the gazillion of details. So admitting that we cannot understand his divine and sovereign workings should not be that hard. We simply need to get past our inability to understand and affirm that God is good and loving and just, and he does not make mistakes, even if we do not understand. We also need to be clear about the point of the story. We, we must remember that the Bible is about God, not about us, and that God is always good and just. And we must remember that the reason God was doing any of this was due to his determination to redeem his creation that had rejected him. And, it was, and this creation was headed for destruction and hell if he did not save them. He who is all-knowing and sovereign and perfect and kind chose to redeem the world and bless this world, a world that did not even deserve to exist and had rejected him, and he chose to redeem it, us, by making himself known to the world through a nation with laws and rituals that were intended to reveal him and create a context for understanding his ultimate revelation of himself as his coming as Jesus. We err when we get hung up on how God decided to save us with his ways and his means. Remember, we humans did not deserve to be created, and we also rejected him and were headed to hell without him. What we need to get hung up on is that he cared for us at all. Think about that. That actually should cause our heads to spin. Did, did that baby the Israelites killed deserve to die? What happened to that baby's soul? Those are, are, are simply and totally not even close to relevant questions. This is not a novel or something written by Disney. This story is a one-of-a-kind and these events are not about that baby, who, by the way, a perfect and good and holy God created and was entirely sovereign over. This, this story is about God saving his creation from the destruction we were headed to. Canaanites, Israelites, all of us. Concerning the baby, God is good. That will never change. We, we simply need to accept that his ways are far beyond our ways, and he remains good even if we do not understand. We also need to understand that God did not remove himself from this system of death, brought about by our sin and rejection of him. He, he was not aloof. 
he, he was involved. He, he loved those who hated him. He blessed over and over those who turned their backs on him and mocked him. He even became one of them and made himself completely vulnerable in a manger in order to demonstrate who he was and his character and his mercy and his grace and his power. He was intimate with this creation that rejected him and simply did not deserve it. And he loved it, loved them, loves us. So much so that he became a man, knowing his creation would torture him and demean him and beat him and spit on him, knowing they would kill him in a most cruel way, hanging him naked and bloodied and humiliated before the very people he came to save. God did not pretend to suffer. He suffered. And it was necessary, not for him, but for us. God was demonstrating his incomprehensible love. He was redeeming a world that did not deserve to exist and had rejected him over and over. And he persisted in order to bring about our salvation via his very own death. And for what it's worth, when Jesus was on that cross, particularly when you consider the weight of the sin he was bearing and the fact that he could have stopped it at any time and that it required the Father with whom he had shared eternal love forever to turn his back on him. And on that, cross, on that cross, he was suffering for people who were mocking and rejecting him, even while he was dying for them. I would argue that, that Jesus experienced far worse than the people of the land, and they were destined for destruction and death and eternal separation from God anyway. If we are to accurately handle the Bible, we cannot default to humanistic worldviews that forget that God is God, that forgets that we are nothing but animated dirt and water, which also would not exist if he had not created us. But more than that, we cannot forget that the truly amazing thing is not that he made us, but that even after we rejected him, he set about a way for us to know and experience his joy and love and life for all eternity at unimaginable cost to himself. We need to remember his love. Finally, the scriptures give multiple reasons that God ordered the total annihilation of the peoples and cultures and idols in the conquest of the promised land. They range from the awfulness of the cultures that were being destroyed to the hardness of the hearts of the leaders of those people. But the single most repeated reason that Israel was told to annihilate everyone was so that those people would not entice them away from God who loved them and was blessing them and was redeeming the world. God made it clear in order for Israel to, to truly manifest who he was to the world, they would need to be pure 
and holy and separate. And that required getting rid of all the people and the culture and the idols that would infect and compromise that witness. Israel did not obey. And Israel was contaminated by their idols and the sinful, debaucherous behaviors of the people around them. And and it led to God's judgment on Israel. and, And that judgment was as severe as anything he did to the Canaanites. Yet God continued to love them. Even their disobedience and rebellion could not stop the ultimate work God would bring about by coming himself as Jesus. So how does this all apply to us? First, I hope this helps us rightly handle the word of God. We need to keep those things in mind when we're reading the scriptures, particularly some of those challenging sections. But but more than that is we need to know while the events in our text were part of a unique thing God was doing through this unique people at that unique time in that unique context, and it will never be repeated, there is something about this kind of cleansing of things that risks infecting the people of God and hindering their witness to the world that is very applicable to us. And it does not involve killing anyone. It does, however, involve mortifying or putting to death our own sinful flesh. The lesson we can draw from this is that we need to show no mercy and get rid of anything contrary to God that might try to dwell in our lives. It means killing it. It means getting rid of it so it will not be a distraction and have the effect of a little yeast and a lump of dough. Our application is this, that if we really want to be an effective vehicle of revelation of who God is to the world, it means not allowing things to live in our hearts that will fester and distract us and lead to God having to chastise us and correct us just as he did with his people Israel. So there you have it. Um, tough text, but when, when we encounter texts like our text today, we need to remember that the, the story is about God, not about us. We need to remember that we do not need to avoid texts like these or apologize for them. We need to remember that that our good and our all-knowing and our just God ordered these things. While, while we might not understand the details, the problem is not his goodness. It's our ability to understand. We need to remember that God was doing it, not as an ogre, but as the creator and sovereign and good and just God who was redeeming a world that had rejected him and was headed to destruction and hell. He was saving us. And that God was not aloof, but out of his love and mercy and grace, he even entered into our world and suffered and died for us that we could be redeemed in the only way that it could happen. And finally, we need to remember that that what God ordered done in the conquest of the promised land 
needs to be applied to our lives and to our hearts so that we will not be compromised or have our witness hampered so that the world will know him and the peace and life eternal he made possible. Let's pray. Father, your, your ways are so much higher than our ways. And your love and your grace is beyond comprehension. Forgive us when we elevate ourselves and don't give you the honor that you are due. Take us and use us. Help us to get rid of those things that hamper our, will, our witness. That this world will know that you love them, that you came to redeem them in Jesus. Amen.